Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult from the University of British Columbia. Between his retirement from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 1975 and his death in 2002, many cyberneticians made the pilgrimage to Pescadero, California to unravel the oft-elusive subtleties of second-order cybernetics with the master himself, Heinz von Furster. Fortunately, for all of those not blessed to have had an audience with the brilliant, playful, and generous man credited with founding the field itself, fellow Viennese colleagues Albert and Carl Mueller, no relation besides their mutual devotion to cybernetics as a whole, recorded their seven-day intellectual dance with von Furster, tailored it into an elegant structure loosely paralleling the Old Testament creation story, and brought it to the reading public as The Beginning of Heaven and Earth Has No Name, Seven Days with Second Order Cybernetics, originally published in German in 2002, and finally out in English translation from Fordham University Press in 2014. For those intrigued yet occasionally stymied by the complex mathematics and at times eccentric and riddle-laden prose style of von Furster's academic papers, The book is nothing less than a revelation, as it clarifies and expands such essential Forsterian notions as the eigenbehavior, the distinction between trivial and non-trivial machines, and a host of other insights regarding recursivity, genetic epistemology, and more, allowing the reader to return to the primary texts, ideally primed to fully absorb their profundity, inventiveness, and intellectual audacity. There could be no more eminently qualified curator of von Furster's thought than co-editor and University of Vienna historian Albert Mueller, who afforded me the privilege of discussing the book with him. So let's turn to my conversation with Albert Mueller. Albert Mueller, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. You are warmly welcome. Thank you. It's a it's a great privilege to have you on the show um, as you've made so many uh, important contributions to uh, the history and, and thinking about uh, cybernetics over the years. So it's, it's great to have you here. Um, we're going to start with the traditional first question uh, on the channel and on the entire New Books Network, which is, can you tell us a little bit about your academic background, your trajectory um, up to your, the present moment, and what led you to the deep engagement with cybernetics that you've had over the years? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm born in 1959, so I'm close to 60 now. Uh, I've been born in a smaller town of Austria in Linz. I went to the gymnasium with 18. I switched to the University of Graz and started uh, studying history and German literature and language. Um, uh, this was at, at the time it was a very conservative uh, university, uh, but but you received your training as, as as it was usual, and so I was looking around to something new or something else, and uh, my first uh, interest in combining uh, the his, his history approach with. Uh, 
sociological things and sociological theories. And I started reading in these fields and I had uh, lectures and so on uh, as a student. And um, my first focus was on medieval social history. And uh, well, I, I did that and uh, wrote my dissertation on such problems. And um, I continued reading new uh, sociologically, theoretically interested uh, books. And in 1984, Nicholas Luhmann's German edition of Social Systems came out. And I was completely, well, astonished about how to do sociology in such a different way compared to Jürgen Habermas and to all the others uh, I read until then. And um, I was fascinated by Luhmann, and uh, in this book, Luhmann made uh, a maximum use use of um, people like Heinz von Förster, Humberto Maturana, uh, and some others I never heard of until then. And so as, as a, as a well-trained historian, I, start, uh, I started reading the sources. Yeah? I, I, uh, I looked at everything I could find about Förster and so on, uh, and Maturana and the whole uh, thing, uh, which um, was beyond my then um, focus and interests. And, and I learned a lot by just reading these things, and it was a completely new um, world uh, for me. And it happened to be that I then met Karl Müller, another Viennese uh, sociologist and uh, philosopher, uh, and he knew Hans von Förster already uh, personally. And uh, the idea emerged that we would celebrate his 85th birthday, uh, Heinz von Förster's 85th birthday here in Vienna in the house uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein created for his sister. Uh, and this happened uh, in 1996. Uh, it was a very interesting conference, uh, having wonderful people there. Uh, and it was on constructivism and cognitive sciences and its historical roots and its current state. Uh, and this conference was the moment I met Heinz von Förster as a person, in person, personally. And uh, very soon the idea emerged that Karl and I would do an interview with Heinz von Förster at his home in Pescadero. And the result of this week-long uh, interview was the book, The Beginning of Heaven and Earth Has No Name, which uh, appeared for the first time in 1997. And so that's the story of how, of how we got to to this uh, journey to Pescadero, which is uh, in talking to others like Bruce Clark, you you are you two are, are not the only ones to make a the sort of pilgrimage to Pescadero to to speak to Heinz. Can you give us just a little overview of Heinz von Furster himself for those people who don't know? And obviously, we're going to get much deeper into this. And and what made him such a significant figure that the two of you felt uh, this book project was something that that uh, needed to be done and that and that people would be interested in? Uh, well, Hans von Förster was born in 1911, before the 
beginning of the First World War in Vienna as um, um, son of a, a family of architects from his father's side and uh, from a family of, uh, well, early feminists, artists uh, from his mother's side. His aunt was a very famous dancer around 1910 and the following years. Yes, it was Grete Wiesenthal, uh, which I think is also famous in the US still, uh, um, in the dancing scene. And um, he uh, grew up in Vienna, started, uh, went to the gymnasium, uh, started studying um, electrical engineering at the uh, Technical University here in Vienna, um, then went into the lavatory uh, items industry. Um, he somehow survived um, uh, the Nazi period by hiding uh, his in part Jewish ancestors. Uh, he worked for uh, the German radar development business uh, until 1945. In uh, some dramatic years in 1945, Hans von Förster um, went uh, to Austria to the Alps um, to uh, hide from the effects of uh, the final days uh, of the war. Then, at a few months later, the chance to go back to Vienna and started two careers. One career in the IT uh, business and another one as a um, science writer for the U.S. Um, uh, radio station here in Vienna, Radio Rot-Weiß-Rot. Uh, that was the name of the radio station and that he did interviews. And um, after three years, uh, he had also finished a little book of about 40 pages on memory and uh, a quantum physical interpretation of the memory, which was completely new then. Um, and he had the opportunity to go to the U.S. as with a more or less a tourist uh, visa then. And uh, when he met some friends uh, in the United States, uh, he came by chance uh, into contact with Warren McCulloch, one of the founding figures of cybernetics. And uh, there was an immediate um, mutual understanding between these two persons. Hans von Förster was invited by Warren McCulloch to the sixth uh, Macy conference, uh, a series of conferences which were of real high significance for the development of cybernetics. And um, Warren McCulloch also helped uh, to uh, provide an academic job for Hans von Förster, and this happened to be in uh, at the University of Illinois, Urbana. Um, and uh, Hans von Förster in 1949 started there um, as uh, an electrical engineer first, and after 
um, a period of time uh, where he also when he also worked as a as an editor of the um, Macy conference volumes um, he uh, was able to found the biological computer lab uh, in 1958 1957 58 was the, it was a process uh, of Uh, founding this lab, and this lab uh, became one of the central places in the development uh, of uh, a new version of cybernetics, uh, which um, uh, and and became also a place of transdisciplinary work, including people like uh, Ross Ashby from England, Gordon Pask from England, uh, Gotthard Günther, a philosopher from Germany who had to uh, leave Germany during the Nazi period. Um, then uh, Umberto Maturana from Chile, uh, Francisco Varela for a period of time, and uh, others, including Alfred Inselberg, who was, uh, had a regular position at the lab. And um, this lab uh, was closed after a lot of successful years in 1974. And um, on the basis of empirical work in the context of cybernetics, Heinz von Förster uh, started to create a new theoretical framework. Uh, and this uh, framework um, Uh, which he contributed to, uh, uh, came up under the name of constructivism or radical. So after his retirement with 65, um, Heinz von Förster went to California, uh, built uh, a house there at, in Pescadero, uh, in, close to Half Moon Bay, uh, south of uh, San Francisco. And... Um, He started a completely new and international career of publishing intensively, giving lectures worldwide, being a, a guest to conferences and to uh, workshops uh, all over the world. And uh, at this point, uh, I met Hans von Förster. And the idea of doing the book was to, uh, since... Hanson Förster didn't uh, write books. He was a lecturer, an excellent lecturer, and he wrote excellent articles. And the books uh, which came uh, out under his name uh, mainly uh, uh, were collections of his papers. And uh, the idea was uh, by talking about his uh, work and career, um, it to... Um, provide a kind of introduction into his way of thinking in, into the history of how it came uh, uh, that he uh, well, had his uh, very, very special um, well, shape of thinking, of seeing the world and of uh, theorizing the world.
I have to say that this book is really such a tremendous aid to reading um, Heinz's papers in, in collections like uh, Understanding, Understanding. Uh, for those of you like myself whose math is not particularly strong, um, Heinz's papers are, are, are you know, are beautifully and beautifully elegantly written, but are incredibly challenging at the same time. And and I find that this book really makes an incredible uh, companion to working one's way through. And 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 particularly because you throughout the the three of you make references to very particular papers that one can go back and look at, like um, epistemology of living things and ethics and second order cybernetics. And there's some particular. Uh, particular papers that Heinz speaks at, at in some detail about, uh, and that the two of you were able to question him about, that uh, one can then cross-reference with the papers themselves with what's in your volume in, a, in an incredibly uh, helpful way. Um, you mentioned the Biological Computer Lab, and I do want to get into some more of the particular things you spoke about um, during the, uh, your interview with him, but I, I do want to sort of talk about the BCL just a little bit longer because it is such an astonishing place. And uh, you've also got another book, I know, uh, the BCL, uh, An Unfinished Revolution, uh, question mark, uh, about the incredible work that was going on there. And that is, uh, like many things in cybernetics, um, not as known in the mainstream of science and history as it perhaps it should be. And Heinz talks a little bit about how focused they were on the on the wonderfully exciting work itself that they didn't necessarily take the time to come up with what he calls uh, you know a few important catchphrases or catchwords that would later catch on for other fields that were actually coming behind what he had been doing with second order cybernetics things in chaos theory etc self organization but they had come up with names that had caught on. Uh, and the, one of the main uh, examples that gets talked about a lot is this idea of parallel computing, that they were developing um, ideas around parallel computing long before uh, these things became popular. Can you say a little bit more about the BCL and, and perhaps the tension between really groundbreaking scientific work and the ability to publicize such work so that it becomes better known. Uh, yeah, the idea of parallel computing, um, which was uh, it, today is a technical standard, of course, and uh, which became very popular uh, at the beginning of the uh, or at the middle of the 1970s. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, trying to escape the limits of the so-called von Neumann architecture of computers. That means that you have to break down every task uh, you have for your computer into a zero-one operation, which goes then very fast, and you have to reconstruct results from this level uh, to uh, whatever you want to do, uh, for instance, our talk now. Uh, and parallel computing was a technical idea, but in 15 years earlier uh, at the BCL, the idea to uh, go beyond the von Neumann architecture also played a major role. Uh, the, one of Hans' students then, uh, Paul Weston, um, uh, took uh, over to experiment with with such tools, and the idea uh, was at the lab to build a machine uh, which was able to count objects. Uh, you have you, just imagine a kind of table uh, with uh, uh, 
which is attributed with uh, 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 light-sensitive uh, cells, photocells, uh, being connected in an analog way uh, among each other, and uh, then put objects, uh, whatever of whatever kind, on it, and the machine uh, should be able to. Uh, produce an output uh, saying these are seven objects or two objects or whatever. And the idea the, uh, of this um, machine, uh, which had the uh, nice name Numa Read from um, uh, number on the one, uh, as one first element and the retina as a second element, Numa Read, um, was... Uh, that it um, it's just the uh, the border between uh, an object and, and the non-object space uh, that marks um, the distinction uh, which enables the machine to count these objects. It, uh, this sounds a little bit strange now, but but it, this machine really worked and uh, it was a, a successful demonstration. There's a wonderful new book uh, in German by a young um, uh, historian of science uh, named Jan Mügenburg, and I hope very much that this book will be translated uh, and published uh, in the US on this kind of objects created in the, at the BCL. And the title of the book translated into English uh, would be um, Lively Artifacts. Gutenberg um, shows very well uh, that these um, objects, uh, they did not make um, uh, practical sense in, in, in a way that you can't do business with it or, or that are really uh, uh, technical um, things uh, you can sell to IBM or, or such companies, but, but they were um, experimental things, um, as, by the way, also the British uh, cyberneticians did uh, in the 1950s and 60s, uh, and these experimental things helped uh, to reformulate uh, own, the own insights, um, growing insights into cognitive processes and uh, uh, just, just to help to, to look through how um, seeing, counting, hearing, uh, looking at, uh, recognizing thing, things uh, uh, are be done by living organisms. And in a paradigm that's very, very different from what we think of traditional uh, AI, uh, that, the, that staying closer to the, the, the original impetus of cybernetics versus what split off into AI, it's a, obviously a very, very different way of going about understanding cognition using, uh, using machines. Um, and I'm fascinated by this idea of being able to recognize number rather than count number. And I think there's the, the example of, you know, when we, when we roll a, a dice, if it turns up a six, there's something that we could call the state of sixness that one can recognize that 
doesn't require us to count the individual dots and that it's in a sense that's what this machine is sort of exploring that that ability to recognize the state of a number versus the kind of counting function of a number have, have i got that correct uh yes that, that was a point heinz von felster emphasized in this book uh he uh talked about the n-ness that of of things uh, as an attribute uh, of a situation. Um, and in fact, it is, uh, I mentioned the von Neumann uh, architecture and uh, in this, in the lo- within the logic of the von Neumann architecture, it would take time to go from one, two, three, four, five, six, and the uh, machines uh, uh, close to, to the ideas of the numerate, uh, they would uh, immediately, without being uh, be, without the necessity to count uh, from one to six, one after the other, uh, recognize that there are six at once. Recognize that there are six objects, for instance. Which takes us much closer to again understanding genuine human cognition through the use of machines than than what we see in much more digital kinds of AI. Yes, of course. Um, uh, I think uh, the um, biological computing uh, in the conception of Heinz von Förster and his uh, his colleagues then, uh, it's much more closer to a kind of a gestalt approach, yeah? Mm-hmm. And, uh, w- which is normally left out of, uh, by the AI people. Right. That, that's the, the, the one dimension. The other dimension is that uh, uh, while the AI people very early uh, went into the f- field of digital programming, um, the BCL continued to work. The, the same is true for the English cyberneticians, that uh, BCL continued to work with analog uh, computing devices. Mm-hmm. So, Numerate is an analog device, in fact. Now, Heinz famously said that the universe contains no information, that it is as it is. But in a sense, if we participate in the closure of some kind of operative unit, we reach a stable, what he called eigenvalues, which then emerge as information for us. But that this information was not, quote, in the game to begin with. It only emerged as these stabilities emerged. So can you tell us a little bit more about about the eigenform. And Heinz tells this wonderful story in the book about first exploring this with a very early Hewlett-Packard uh, calculator in about 1968. And this idea of the stabilities or operative units that are what he calls peeled out of the universe. And I think obviously the eigenform is a very central thing that re- you return to again and again throughout the book and is returned to again and again throughout Heinz's uh, corpus. So can you say a little bit about, about the eigenform, the eigenvalue? Uh, but the eigenvalue is is um, is a mathematical idea going back to David Hilbert, a German mathematician who developed this idea, I think, in the 1910s and 1920s, and uh, was was a, a, an idea which was present in the field of mathematics, of course, uh, as uh, Hilbert being one of the most famous figures in mathematics in the, during the 20th century and um, but but I think uh, uh, the eigenvalue idea just until 
Heinz remained within the field of mathematics as a, well, genuine idea there. And Heinz uh, took this idea uh, and uh, played with it and uh, had, the, had um, uh, and developed a different approach. In the different uh, approach, uh, uh, he chose uh, was in connection with the ideas um, Jean Piaget, uh, a Swiss psychologist, uh, devel had developed in the context of the growing up of children and the, um, uh, the children's attitudes to the world. Um, and there's the story that Heinz uh, had been uh, invited to celebrate the 80th uh, birthday of Jean Piaget uh, at a conference and there he um, um, came up, Heinz came up with a paper called Objects Token for Eigenbehavior. And so he took the um, term eigenvalue and transformed it into another term, uh, eigenbehavior. The story goes on with uh, other people like uh, Luke Hoffman, who uh, came up later with the uh, term eigenform. Um, the uh, basic idea is that from certain algorithms being recursive, uh, there at some point stable from from a, a um, how can I describe it a kind of vibrating behavior comes up with a stable value, and um, so uh, Heinz started to take this. Eigen uh, uh, metaphor to use it uh, in a great variety of ways, but always having in his head this um, formal idea coming uh, from uh, stemming from David Hilbert, uh, uh, Hilbert uh, who uh, had developed these things uh, decades before. And in terms of even our basic cognition, again, the, uh, that the object that appears before us, because being a, a sort of pioneer of constructivism, as you mentioned, there was there's no ontological commitment to uh, an objective description of an external reality, that the objects that we perceive are these kinds of stabilities that are um, the products of recursive operations of our sensory motor capacities. Is that, have I got Got that correct? Yes. Uh, there's the, the, the closure of sensory uh, and uh, the sensorium and the uh, motor uh, side in living systems. That that was uh, is a is a basic idea Heinz uh, dealt with uh, since about well, let's say uh, the late 1950s, and it was also um, a task for other cyberneticians. Uh, uh, such as Umberto Maturana, there's this famous article um, in, at the end of the 1950s on uh, uh, what the frog's eye tells the frog's brain. And this is exactly uh, this, uh, what, what is sensed and what is the, um, the, the motor answer to uh, the sensory data. And there's... Um... 
Heinz's uh, notion of information. We talked already talked about the way that uh, the analog computing was doing is sort of uh, in, in contrast to the von Neumann um, architecture. But this even his notion of information uh, in contrast to the Shannon information in that. Um, of uh, Heinz's description of that there's the the amount of information in a sentence is based upon uh the number of inferences that uh that the observer can make with that uh sentence can you can you say a little bit about that and and his the way his conceptions of information um expand on and and maybe revise some of the ideas in the Shannon information notion um yeah uh, Claude Shannon um, wrote his famous article on um his mathematical theory uh, of communication. He didn't use the, the the word information in the title, but in fact, it's what we understand uh, today as information, not as communication, which is much more a social act, um, a mutual social act um, uh, when we talk about communication. Uh, Shannon was highly influential in the whole field, not only uh, within cybernetics, but also um, within the emerging uh, computer science, and we all know this. With uh, in also in context with uh, media technology and all this stuff, um, Shannon um, made a, a very interesting and quite simple operation. Uh, he he. Um, defined information at uh, something which could be delivered as a kind of package. And this package um, is transmitted from a, a sender side to a receiver side. And there are now, uh, there's now a scenario of uh, uh, an, a channel uh, which might be disturbed uh, by uh, effects of any kind, and uh, he developed a mathematical framework, a framework of formula, formulas um, calculating uh, the loss of information during that, uh, well, path of transmission uh, somehow. And uh, the whole concept uh, turned out to be highly efficient, uh, of high uh, technical use in many regards, but, but it is also clear that many things are lost uh, um, when uh, just relying upon this kind of modeling. Uh, and as as I um, mentioned before, uh, communication is a social thing, and the social dimension of um, this. Um, uh, the social dimension of uh, this in, uh, information transmission uh, is uh, limited, eliminated uh, by Shannon's model. Uh, I think um, Hans and others' approaches uh, are more, um, and I, here, here at this point I have to mention Gordon Pask, who worked years and years on what he called a conversation theory, and the conversation theory worked with a, with a, uh, with individuals uh, who could be persons and machines, and he was also in the business with uh, learning and teaching machines. Uh, Pask uh, tried to include um, the social dimension um, into 
uh, what could be uh, called uh, communication again. And uh, the same is true for uh, uh, Donald Mackay, for instance, another English uh, cybernetician who did this in the 1950s. Uh, so uh, to overcome the lacks of the uh, uh, ideas of Shannon, it was necessary to, well, rework the whole uh, framework of what, what could be understood uh, by terms uh, of communication and uh, cognition, of course, as well. Thank you. Um, you you do a wonderful job. It's the book has got a great sense of playfulness that that starts, of course, with uh, the very playful nature of uh, the way um, von Forster would uh, would speak and engage with people. And um, you are you playfully gesture to this idea of creating a Forster machine out of this uh, these conversations that you have with him, and you identify a certain a number of uh, Forster operators, um, and we've mentioned a few of them. And of course, there's even first order, first order operators and second order, first order operators. We've talked about um, uh, eigenforms. Uh, are there other sort of first order operators that you feel are particularly significant? Uh, I mean, they all are obviously, but ones that we to really understand Heinz's um, uh, thought that there's there are others that we really need to to try and and, and grapple with. Yeah, I think we talk a lot uh, uh in this book uh, about the concept of inversion. Yeah, uh, it was one of the ideas of uh, Hans that uh, immediately to take a commonly shared view and to turn it around. Yeah, uh, and and uh, he uh, played this game uh, many many times, and he, he used to. To read, for instance, uh, the Tractatus Logico Philosophicus uh, by um, Ludwig Wittgenstein in this way. He just uh, took out sentences uh, formulated by Ludwig Wittgenstein and uh, put it around. Yeah, uh, he, he negated for, uh, uh, the the Wittgenstein uh, utterance and. Uh, well, this is this is a, a way which opens up, uh, I think, a lot. It it makes things visible you can't see if you uh, don't do such a process. And this this is not only a kind of uh, well intellectual play or intellectual game. Uh, it's also in an a, an act of enrichness, uh, enrichment. Uh, of one's worldview. And there's a couple that jump to mind of, from Wittgenstein, the idea that the picture is a model of reality, which he inverts into saying, no, reality is, comes from your picture, right? And then, and the other one where they say, uh, say it like it is, when they teach in journalism school, say it like it is. And, and Heinz insists, no, 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 it is like you say it, right? And those, from the constructivist angle, those, yeah. These are famous examples uh, of this kind of, of uh, usage of uh, such an modus operandi uh, mm -hmm. turn things around yeah just just to to have a, a look at what comes out if you do such a thing right there's also verb operators this thing that you guys refer to in the book as verb operators 
uh, that something like science, rather than it being a noun, it becomes a verb. It's making knowledge. And this ties into also his love of the etymology of words and tracing their evolution over time to, to, to pick at what's maybe been lost in maybe what Gordon Pask might call the entailments uh, that of, an, of a word that have become kind of invisible. And this idea of, it seems to really chime with a lot of second order cybernetics in, um, in Margaret uh, Margaret, uh, no, sorry, uh, Mary Catherine Bateson's book, um, Our Own Metaphor, there's a section where they're talking about stamping out verbs because we, or sorry, stamping out nouns because we need to understand things as processes rather than as objects. H- how important was that to Heinz's thinking? It was absolutely important. Uh, uh, take the idea, but, but the, he, sh- he shared this insight with uh, a lot of other um, cyberneticians. Take the example of the term knowledge. Yeah, it's much more interesting if you switch from knowledge as a kind of package uh, into knowing, which is an activity and a process and an unfinished thing, an ongoing thing. Because those eigenforms can always can always change. Yeah, they can always be transformed. Eigenforms uh, normally do not change. Can they? Uh, but the idea that that our picture of reality is is what is fixed in our minds as a portrait of reality is it, that is that's open to change, though, is it not? Uh, this is okay. That's that's uh, uh, cognizing, not cognition. Cognizing is an ongoing process, and. Uh, you end up maybe with a certain eigenform or gestalt or whatever, something which is um, an abridgment of uh, uh, the uh, cognizing process. Uh, but yes, this, this can change even permanently, I think. We've taken kind of for granted the whole notion of the second order uh, as we, as this, I realize as this conversation is coming to a close, we haven't really taken a moment to dis- to describe what to followers of second order cybernetics or people involved in second order cybernetics perhaps is a better way to put it, uh, understand as the second order. Can you say a little bit about second order operations as, as Heinz developed them and along with, of course, as you mentioned, many other collaborators in the field of, of cybernetics? Uh, yeah, uh, that's... At the end of the BCL, in, the, in 1974, um, Heinz uh, set out his uh, last project at the BCL itself, and it was a collective project he did together with other scientists and his students. And um, the result of this um, two-terms-lasting seminar uh, was a volume uh, called Cybernetics of Cybernetics. And on the first page of this book, which is a kind of compendium of first-order cybernetics at the one hand, the classics, uh, Norbert Wiener was included, of course, uh, Ross Ashby and many others from the the early years of cybernetics. Um, And it, it was not only a compendium of first order cybernetics and the kind of thing you can give to a student or so, but it was also uh, the starting point of what Heinz called second order cybernetics. And the first page he used to define uh, these two terms, first 
order cybernetics and second order cybernetics in a very short and I think precise way uh, and a very surprising way uh, also. Uh, and the definition reads uh, the following way. First order cybernetics, the cybernetics of observed systems. Second order cybernetics, the cybernetics of observing systems. So there's an ambiguity in this observing. Um, it's the act of observing systems at the one uh, hand, and it's the systems observing others and themselves uh, on the other side. So I think this ambiguity is, is a key element in this uh, definition, and it, uh, the definition itself is quite starting point uh, of great um, influence on the further development of cybernetics as second-order cybernetics. Right. And he also, in the book, I remember him referring to it as uh, the second order is the reflection on a reflection. And this this interesting notion that second order operations send first order operations out on journeys <laughs> and out on missions of a kind uh, of reflection. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's an interesting thing. You, you can, of course, play with this uh, first order, second order uh, for a time. Uh, there was the idea that there is a third order, fourth order, fifth order, and nth order, um, um, very uh, closely connected to uh, Russell and Whitehead's idea of meta levels, which uh, um, allow a kind of infinite uh, building upon building upon building upon. Uh, but um, after some time it was it turned out completely that there are only these two levels first order and second order you act um, in the way as observing yourself and uh, objects or subjects or whatever um, on another side or you just observe them as them yeah and if you start to include yourself into your observ observing process or observation, uh, you enter the second order. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. There's so much more we could say. Of course, we've only scratched the surface of the, the, the amazing depths of Heinz's thinking and your own uh, incredible uh, wealth of knowledge uh, in this field. But you've been most generous with your time already, so I, I want to be mindful of that. So we will close with our traditional last question, which is, what uh, projects are keeping you busy at the moment? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still in the history of cybernetics, and I'm... Uh, 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 I'm currently I'm I'm working with the papers of uh, the late uh, British cybernetician Ranulf Glenville, uh, who in his last will uh, also um, sent uh, ha had his papers sent to Vienna and to to archival purposes here, and I'm just uh, working with that at the moment putting an order into it, uh, cataloging them and making it ready for research.
Well, I'm I'm so glad to hear that because as with the, the legacy of Heinz, I can imagine uh, no uh, better hands for the legacy, amazing legacy of Randolph Glanville to be in uh, than yours, Albert. So that's good news for all of us. Thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to speaking you to you again, uh, either about a eventual book about Glanville or whatever is next uh, for you. Thank you again so much, Albert. Okay, it was a pleasure. 